Breaking news this morning out of Afghanistan. Sources say the U.S. Uh, is now completely pulling out all U.S. personnel from the U.S. Embassy in Kabul over the next 72 hours. Then uh, they pull out and the Taliban takes over the government and takes over control of all the, you know, everything. And uh, a lot of the citizens are not thrilled with the Taliban. This country could be sliding into a kind of civil war and that the Taliban have been making advances. You know, they were not letting women do anything or they still, you know, the Taliban, they were really not happy with anybody who worked with the U.S. government, which was most of the SIVs and a lot of the, you know, obviously a lot of the people fleeing. There's lots of other, you know, minorities like the Hazaras and stuff that they persecute and don't like. And so there's a huge section of the Afghani population that um, are not friends with the Taliban. So they are fleeing um, when they see them taking over town after town after town and eventually Kabul. Um, you know, everybody's trying to get out on planes. Eventually uh, commercial flights are shut down. Eventually they can't even leave via the borders and stuff. And the U.S. is running you know, evacuation flights and stuff. So it was just crazy. I mean, we know people, we still know people that are there that did not get out, that are SIVs that lived here, lived in the U.S. and went over for the summer. And then we're like, oh, I can't, you know, and could not leave. And so it's just, you know, it was crazy. So. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go to that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. You just heard from Laura Asuri talking about a resettlement boom kicked off by the U.S.'s withdrawal. That resettlement is only the beginning. In fact, the United Nations High Commission on Refugees estimated that there will be more than half a million new Afghan refugees this year, on top of the 2.2 million that have already fled Pakistan and Iran. With so many people desperately trying to flee the country, organizations that resettle evacuees, asylum seekers, and refugees have been hit hard. Laura is leading one such organization. She founded Homes Not Borders, which helps refugees resettle in Washington, D.C. Later, we'll hear from Laura about how she developed her service mentality and discovered her passion for helping refugees. But before we get there, we got to talk about her parents' wagon. You know, my mother is always a very has always been very welcoming to people. She was the head of the welcome wagon when she was, uh, you know, in our neighborhood when I was little and stuff like that. It was like a group that like welcomed other people to the neighborhood and brought like new people, you know, meals and organized parties and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, this was back when I was a kid in uh, Downingtown, Pennsylvania. She was she was ahead of that, and then you know, so you know, very always kind of friendly and, and welcoming to people in that way. And then my dad was always big on, you know, helping others um, and service and stuff like that. And, you know, he's the one person he... How did he do it? So if your mom was on the wagon, what the was wagon. he doing off the, <laughs> the wagon? wagon. He was, <laughs> no, I mean, I remember my dad, like he would, he would always like stop and help people on the side of the road and, you know, those kind of things. We also developed through that time, like a uh, interest in, in journalism and, and writing, right? Yeah. I was always more interested in, though I wrote nonfiction stories, these were not about my life, but I, I was always more interested in the non reading nonfiction, that is. So. Why? 
I'd rather do something than read about it, you know, that kind of thing. Like, why read about this make-believe adventure when I can just go have my own adventure, you know? Yeah. And when there's so many adventures just waiting in the real world. Yeah, and just I want to learn. If I'm going to read something, I'd rather learn something. I've since taken this back and I realize the importance of fiction, especially now that I'm living and working like a lot of stuff, I'd rather not read about it. I need a beach read. I chill out of it. And read about the woes of the world and whatever. Doing too much. Like, anyways, yeah. So you were reading about the woes of the world early on. And so to continue those woes, how did you? start to study journalism in college? I went to American University and they have a great um, journalism program. Yeah, I graduated in three years. And, and, and to that, I went to England for one semester too because I, I felt like I should get out in the real world, which is ridiculous. So, the out in the real world, what does that mean? I don't know. I felt like I was, you know, wanted to get moving with life and suppose of staying in college much longer. What did you think life looked like though? Well, yeah, I, I, I just, you know, I don't know. I was done with college after three years. But again, wanted to get doing things. I empathize with Laura's drive to get out of the classroom and into the real world. I really sense her antsiness to explore because honestly, it seems like she'd been ready to step into that world for some time. She'd thrived in academia, graduating in three years. But within the curated walls of traditional education, like you can only learn so much. Laura wanted the real world. She wanted to experience culture and satiate her curiosity. And that feeling would lead her to traveling across the Atlantic. I wanted to do journalism still when I graduated. Then I went, I took a year off, which was a good idea. But I, whatever, a year abroad, I guess. And I went and I waited tables in Ireland for like a couple oh, wow. months. And had a great time there. And then I taught English in Costa Rica for another couple months. That was my year between life and college. Yeah. What do you think I taught you? I taught me, I mean, just, you know, that it's it's not just America. There's a world's a much bigger place and we're a very small part in this world. Um, you know, there's a point in your life where you're like, here I am. Like, I want that, you know, I want something to jump at me. You know, I'm ready for any opportunity. When Laura got back to the States, she started writing about finance and banking. And although she was doing journalism, the topic didn't feel especially impactful. But soon, she found a cause that would grab her attention. Um, and I was visiting a friend in Seattle and uh, saw a newspaper that the homeless people were selling called Real, yeah, it was Real Change. And I'd never seen it before um, and thought it was a great idea. Called a street paper, and it's a paper about homelessness and poverty issues that um, homeless people or formerly homeless people will sell and make money off of it. And the articles are written by homeless people or you know formerly homeless people. And so I, I saw that went back to DC and looked into like if there was one in DC, if there's ever been one, and why there's not. And somehow or another, I, I connected with um, the director of the National Coalition for the Homeless and said like I have this idea we should start the street paper in DC. Anyways, yeah, he didn't take me seriously at all because like I had no like business like dealing, you know, I had no in in the homeless community. But then I was still kind of toying with the idea and another guy, this is probably a longer story than me, but another guy named Ted Henson had contacted had also come to DC with the same idea but he had more kind of clout, I guess. I don't even know how in the homeless community. I don't know. Yeah, and so he put us in touch and in the beginning of 2003 and by November we had gotten the first issue of Street Sense out. So what did it feel like to create this paper and how did the writing and and stories that you were telling here differ from what you were doing at the bank? 
you know, they're just more meaningful. I mean, you know, obviously about people's living situations and housing and lack of housing and, you know, treatment of homeless people and those kind of things. Uh, so, you know, more personal, I guess, and, you know, more consequential than writing about banks. Do you remember any story that stuck out to you where it's like, okay, like this is why I'm doing the, it? Um, the biggest, like this was our biggest story and probably is probably one of our biggest stories to date. We did a story about, there were people, you know, the day laborer kind of jobs that a lot of homeless people did were evicting people. They were being hired by these, you know, for a day to go and evict people through these eviction companies. So they would go and clear out these apartments. So it was like homeless people were making more people homeless. And it was just like the dichotomy of it. It was just crazy. And so like we did a big story on, and, and the thing was, the companies that were doing the evictions were then not paying fair wages or paying what they said they would. And there was this whole like back and forth and stuff like that. So we had like a homeless guy, Jake, like, you know, go undercover, but not really because he was homeless. (laughs) But he was like a reporter, you know, on the front doing that. And like I interviewed, you know, like interviewed the companies and blah, blah, blah. And we did this great story on that um, and actually like spurred like a class action lawsuit against the eviction companies. And we actually got coverage from the Wall Street Journal, which was crazy. Um, So Jake has his own like pixelated image in the Wall Street Journal's. So, yeah, he was on the front page. It was pretty great. So, yeah, it was great. I mean, it was, you know, it was validation. It was that, you know, what we're doing is actually changing things and, you know, raising awareness and making things happen. I want to take what you did with with Street Sense up to 2014 and tell me a little bit about what's going on with Syrian refugees. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, 2014 was like the beginning of the Arab Spring and um, all the unrest in um, Syria and elsewhere uh, and the massive wave of refugees that came in everywhere, including the U.S. Um, the Arab Spring is when a lot, a lot of Arab countries, um, you know, the, the younger population kind of revolted against the, the ruling structures and tried to change things. And, and it was successful in. And then the Syrians tried to do it. And then the U.S. just said, well, sorry, we can't help you. And then. So a bunch of, obviously, Syrians left Syria um, and came to the U.S. um, in droves. Along the northwest Syrian border, families, many of them for years, living in tents and other makeshift structures, the result of a 10-year civil war that's torn their country apart, reducing entire towns to rubble and leaving millions in a desperate and dangerous situation. Um, So it was around 2016 that my church, National Community Church, you know, obviously saw this this flow of um, Syrians coming to the U.S. and wanted to help them um, and started a refugee care ministry. And was it was kind of developing in 2016, and then it got formalized in 2017. And then we all know in 2017 that the new administration changed, and they basically said that we're not letting any Syrians and lots of other people into the country. Um, so we... With the Refugee Care Ministry, one thing we did was to reach out to the resettlement agencies and see how they need help. And it was providing furnishings and just helping to set up the apartments in general, getting the furniture into the apartments and the dishes and housewares and stuff. Right. So Arab Spring. During the early 2010s, a movement called the Arab Spring swept through much of the Middle East. This anti-government movement came to a head in Syria in March of 2011, when police forces brutally attacked activists, leading to nationwide protests. This chain of events marked the beginning of the Syrian civil war, a conflict between militant groups and government troops that has lasted and continued for 11 years and has caused unimaginable devastation to the country's inhabitants. 
More than 6.6 million Syrians have fled the country since the beginning of the war, while 6.7 million more are displaced within Syria. Now, around 70% of Syrians live in poverty as the nation's infrastructure and social conditions continue to deteriorate. 13 million people in Syria are believed to be in dire need of humanitarian aid. While most Syrian refugees who fled this abject poverty and political turmoil are living in neighboring countries, some have immigrated to the United States. And immigrating under any circumstances is hard, but Syrian refugees and similarly Afghan refugees have to overcome insurmountable odds as they struggle to adapt to this unfamiliar environment. And Laura couldn't look away, not when so many needed the help that she could provide. Where with the refugees, I mean, a lot of them are literally, they don't know a soul here, uh, they don't know anybody here. They don't even know the country. So it's just a different, it's a different level of displacement than just not having a home. It's, it's more than that. You don't have a homeland, you don't have family connection, that kind of thing. So, and both sets of populations hate to like, you know, stereotype, but are you know, also really motivated at the same time. I mean, a lot of the, you know, homeless individuals we met, um, a lot of them came out of jail and they're just trying to make a better life for themselves. And same with the refugees that are here. Obviously they're trying to make a better life for themselves and their families and that sort of thing. It was a family. I was, and um, we picked them up from the airport. Um, I remember there was a toddler because I had a car seat to put the toddler in. Um, yeah, I think there was maybe two other kids too. And then the husband was in the front. I was driving. The husband, you know, the father of the household was in the front seat. Where they stay, where the one of the apartments is, is near the Redskins Stadium. Like you could walk there. That's what I was telling him about. I was like, "Hey, do you like, you know, do you live really close to them, you know, to the to this football, American football stadium?" And like the amount of information this guy, he was so excited. Like he loved American football and was telling me about all the American football he could watch in Afghanistan and like the American movies he loved. I don't even remember the American movies. You're going to ask me, but I don't know. But it was just like, you know, it's kind of the interaction. You're like, well, we're all kind of, you know, all, all kind of the same, the same. thing. Yeah. Everybody cares about sports everywhere. And this is the, the common denominator, <laughs> you know, so it's just very funny. Everyone likes a few movies as well. Exactly. Exactly. It always brings us all together. So, yeah. When I got involved with the refugee care ministry, I was just like, you know, I'm just going to be a volunteer. I'm not going to take any leadership. Because I had already like did Street Sense and started that. And I also had like a one-year-old at the time. So there's only so much I could do. And I was like, I'm just going to do this to get, you know, kind of back into giving back. And when Jill was the person running it, was saying, you know, wanted somebody to make contact with the resettlement agencies. And I was like, fine, I'll do this. This is easy. So I ended up being the point of contact for two of them at that point. And then it just kind of, you know, devolved, evolved, whatever from there. Um, so what did you find yourself doing? At the beginning, they would tell us like a family was arriving and we would help you know, kind of what we're doing now, but to a much smaller scale. Before the people settled in, we would help set up the apartments. But at that time, they would provide the furniture, which was a couch and a table and chairs and a bed. Eventually, it just grew. And within a year, we were doing, um, you know, full home setups and doing it for all three resettlement agencies. Um, we also saw a lot of need. I mean, we were doing the home setups and we saw all these people, as I mentioned, were most of them were Afghan SIVs and most of them had advanced degrees and, you know, spoke English well and came from a corporate environment. And they'd be like, oh, I need a job too. How can you with the job? And so we, we saw this need and try and wanted to address that as well. So I think that was that and just the amount of work and time that volunteers put in, we felt it was time to kind of spin off on our own. 
So Laura did spin off that organization. And that organization would be called Homes Not Borders. And through it, she would aim to form deep relationships with refugees and make sure they got the help they needed. Laura told me about one such story. Yeah, I mean, there, um, I'm just trying, I can't think of his name, the one, oh, yeah, Mohammed Osam, yeah. Like, you know, he came to the U.S. and with, you know, resettlement, they want them to get a job right away. And obviously, had an accounting background and couldn't get a job right away as an accountant or, you know, in finance because nobody can get a, a corporate level job in three months without knowing a soul when they arrive. So, you know, he started working at CVS, a lot work at Walmart, a lot drive Uber. But then they have a family to support. He had a wife and two kids and then a baby on the way. And so it's just, it's this vicious cycle where then he's in this minimum wage job, but has to work as many hours as possible to support his family. And so it's hard to then look for a better job in finance. And so we saw this a lot. So they get to get stuck at that level. Like, how are they feeling? A lot of the people we wanted to profile because we've heard these stories and like, it was hard to find somebody to talk about their experience because they were just so ashamed of where they were at, you know? Yeah. So like with Muhammad, we just partnered him with somebody in finance and new people in the industry. And, you know, they worked on resume, they work on interview skills. Um, and most importantly, just making connections to people in the industry. And eventually he ended up getting a job, which was great. Really? Yeah. He was so gracious and, you know, happy that we could partner him with this, help him get the job. I mean, yeah. What was he missing? Or was it was it literally just like interview skills and no, resume? No, it, it was like, it was just that it was the connections. Like his mentor knew somebody who knew somebody who, you know, had an end of this company. I mean, it's like anything. Like you s- submit a resume and don't know anybody. I mean, chances are you're never going to get noticed. You know, it's all about who you know. So um, we're just trying to get the Afghans to know, you know, more people. <laughs> so. As Laura continued to volunteer, she started to help refugees overcome the obstacles of arrival. This gave her an intimate understanding of these obstacles. And this understanding isn't just anecdotal. Let's actually back it up with some U.S. employment data. So without a network, landing a job is near impossible. 85% of jobs are filled through networking and a whopping 70% of jobs are never even publicly posted. Now, that's the plight facing all job seekers. But imagine if you were a newly settled refugee. You don't have a network, language skills, or cultural proficiency And that cultural proficiency can range from when to say thank you to how to perform gender and social roles in public. You could have been the head of surgery or a CEO in your country, but here in America, if you don't speak the language, you're another illiterate immigrant struggling to put food on the table and a roof over your family's head. Or at least that's how the job market views you. Luckily, Mohammed's story ended in success. And that was in large part because of the help he received from his resettlement agency. And Mohammed is just one of the 97,000 Afghan refugees that have settled in the U.S. since 2000. Laura, being many refugees' first point of contact, not only helped physically relocate families into new homes, but played a crucial role in helping people adjust. But this help isn't a given. Had Mohammed immigrated just a few years later during the 2021 Afghan refugee crisis, things could have turned out very differently. Today, as more refugees arrive, resettlement agencies have less resources to support. In fact, things got so busy for Laura's organization, Homes Not Borders, that for a time, she had to put aside her administrative duties to be boots on the ground. We saw that the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan um, with a deadline of August 30th, uh, 2021. And we saw in the summer, like a surge of SIVs coming in. 
This is an established State Department run program, but essentially what it does is give a path to U.S. relocation and potentially eventually citizenship uh, for people who had a direct working relationship uh, with the United States, in this case in Afghanistan, uh, for a minimum of two years. A lot of walk-in SIVs coming in, people flying over on their own dime and then applying for the resettlement benefits here. So, uh, yeah, we saw that, definitely saw the writing on the wall with people leaving Afghanistan there. Starting, like, whatever, beginning of August until the end of August was just crazy and, you know. Why was everyone leaving? What was happening? Well, the U.S. was pulling out of Afghanistan, who was, and the government in Afghanistan was being supported by the U.S. and, you know, then uh, they pull out and the Taliban takes over the government and takes over control of all the, you know, everything. And uh, a lot of the citizens are not thrilled with the Taliban. Why is that? You know, they were not letting women do anything or they still, you know, the Taliban, they were really not happy with anybody who worked with the U.S. government, which was most of the SIVs and a lot of the, you know, obviously a lot of the people fleeing. There's lots of other, you know, minorities like the Hazaras and stuff that they persecute and don't like. And so there's a huge section of the Afghani population that... Um, are not friends with the Taliban. So they are fleeing um, when they see them taking over town after town after town and eventually Kabul. Um, you know, everybody's trying to get out on planes. Eventually, uh, commercial flights are shut down. Eventually, they can't even leave via the borders and stuff. And the U.S. is running, you know, evacuation flights and stuff. So it was just crazy. I mean, we know people, we still know people that are there that did not get out, that are SIVs that lived here, lived in the U.S. and went over for the summer. And then we're like, oh, I can't, you know, and could not leave. And so it's just, you know, it was crazy. So. Jeez. And so, like, you see all this and people are flooding into the U.S. Is it just like business as usual? Did you have to adapt to it? Like what, what happened? But it's just been like we've gone from like zero to 120 at Homes Not Borders since the beginning of August. Because, uh, I mean... What we were doing with home setups and even just other services and career mentoring was so slow. I mean, we had 2020 with pandemic and everything was, you know, shut down. A lot of resettlement didn't happen. The embassy in Afghanistan was shut down because of the pandemic. And so there wasn't SIVs coming through for a while, you know, barely any refugees coming through. So it was just, it was so slow up until that point. And then like at the beginning of the year, Biden didn't re-up the numbers. And so that there was just so many delays and so slow. It was just like, oh. And then, like, it was just like, poof, everything just exploded. So, like, not just us, but a lot of the resettlement agencies had been stripped down to, like, nothing because there, was, there wasn't anybody, so they weren't getting funding. And then it just, it exploded. I mean, we were doing 24 home setups from, like, you know, January to June of 2021. And we did 23 in August or in October alone. So, I mean, that's, like, the numbers wow. we're looking at. So, it's like... Like 10 times the amount, Yeah, basically. so, I mean, so it's, you know, so it just, we hit the ground running. And so we... Yeah, we just we the, we were helping out the resettlement agencies and working with them. I mean, we were in a good, work, you know, just covering what we could at the beginning because it was just all these people came over and trying to find them housing, obviously trying to get the furnishings and stuff for them in line and stuff like that. Uh, the stories are different now. Like the people that you're hearing coming over now, like how, how are those, those stories different from the the Afghans that have been coming for the last like few years? And and, and is, is there any, anything that you're doing differently to help them? 
so yeah, so as I mentioned, it has always been mostly SIVs that, you know, again, highly educated, work for the U.S. government, um, speaking English fluently. And now it's a lot of um, that are not SIVs, um, that are refugees or what they're now calling parolees here uh, that had just fled you know, some have family that are in, you know, that were associated with the former government or with, you know, SIVs that help the U.S. Um, but yeah, so it's a, it's a different population. You know, there's different needs. It's not so much, you know, as I, we talked kind of getting in the career, just getting a regular job, um, helping them out that way. Um, and also just coming with stuff. I mean, the SIVs would come with everything. You know, they packed their bag and had their bags and had their, came with their rugs because they're Afghans, like all in their bags, packed up and all their clothes. And now you saw the, everybody saw those pictures of the people in the planes. I mean, they had nothing but the clothes on their back. And so they're coming with absolutely nothing. And so they need clothes as well. And all sorts of other things, you know, um, all sorts of other supplies and stuff. So yeah, we're definitely seeing, it's a definitely a different crowd of Afghans that is coming. So what do you think people should know about the people coming over from Afghanistan now and, and the people who are resettling now? Like, What would you think would be helpful for the general population to know? I mean, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, just they're they're here trying to make a better place for their family and, you know, keeping their kids safe here and help them make their way and help them you know, get a better job and get employed. I mean, so many Afghans are underemployed right now. We're not employed at all, but we'll be underemployed soon. And just to help them, you know, their, their assets here in the U S now, you know, these, these Afghans are now assets in the U S but they're not being used to their potential working at CVS and Walmart and Uber and stuff like that. So. The U.S. originally invaded Afghanistan in response to the Al-Qaeda-orchestrated September 11th attacks. 20 years later, the resulting war claimed the lives of over 10,000 United States service members and civilians, 100,000 Afghan lives, and more than $2 trillion U.S. dollars. After the Biden administration's decision to let Afghanistan stand on its own earlier this year, U.S. officials correctly predicted that the Taliban would eventually overtake the country. But they didn't foresee just how quickly the Taliban would seize control. 15 days before the U.S. officially withdrew its military on August 31st, 2021, the Taliban had already captured the country's capital of Kabul. Photos and videos of people clinging to U.S. jets as they took off, hundreds of individuals jammed into military planes, and families scaling walls to reach Kabul airport flooded the internet. Shocking, horrifying images that can only convey a fraction of the desperation to escape the Taliban regime. A regime that moves to deny civil rights, education, and economic opportunities for women. A regime that persecutes ethnic minorities like the Hazaris. And you might think, okay, at least some Afghans escaped. But those who got out found themselves at the beginning of a much longer journey. Escaping is one thing, but resettling, that's a whole other battle. And that's, once again, where community organizations like Homes Not Borders have come in to help. So you've essentially been doing community work since you were a very young kid. Why, why do you do it? I don't, I mean, I've never been homeless. I've never been a refugee or an immigrant for that matter, um, had a lovely suburban life uh, growing up and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, there's no like, this happened to me and now I have to, like, we have a great board member, Hannah, who like has this lovely story of when she came here from India, how this like woman helped her family and like, this is why she gives back. And I wish I had that story, but I don't. 
I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm the person that like, I mean, I, this is what it comes down. This is what I think of when I think about it. It's not, I mean, if there is a need and nobody's doing it, then somebody should be doing it. And I guess, I, you know, and, and AKA me or, you know, getting people together to fill this need. Um, you know, like with street sense, there wasn't a news, you know, it was giving voice to the voiceless kind of thing, the homeless with the paper. And I had the skills of journalism and stuff like that. And then with the refugees, you know, there were the, the need, the home setups and stuff. Nobody was doing this really. And I'm like, well, this, we can do this. This is something easy to do. And so it's just kind of that my attitude of like, well, okay, there's this problem. I can help solve it. Let me help solve it. Something that I was, I was just thinking when you were, you were saying that is like, I think all humans look to solve problems. I think that's like, like humans are problem solvers. And generally we solve problems based on creating the world that we'd like to live in. And I think some people see the their world as a bit smaller than others. So sometimes like people's world is just themselves. I'm going to make the most amount of money for myself and be as rich as possible. Sometimes it's like, I want to benefit um, my immediate community. And like, that's the world that I want to create my for myself. For you, it seems more global. And I think that's that's something that most people should strive for is, is expanding the sphere of influence that you'd like to influence and trying to get to a, a, a global a global mission. What advice would you give to someone who's just like finishing school, has a journalism job that they're maybe not thrilled with? What what would you what advice would you give to that person on on what would you focus on? Because I, I, you know, I was talking to some of the people on my team who are, are graduating soon. It's hard to know your direction coming out of college, and even a few years after, um, it's hard to know what to prioritize, right? Like, do you prioritize money? Do you prioritize passion? Do you prioritize free time? Like, what do you prioritize in this in this like, you know, uh, this this early stage of life when you have so much energy and have so much time and and don't have a lot of obligations like what should you prioritize so you make the most of this very unique period in your life you know i i again it obviously i guess it (laughs) depends on what what your priority is but no i I feel like especially in the early 20s and stuff you just gotta you know you have the benefit of energy and no burdens of family and you know children and whatever those kind of things uh so i think yeah just follow your passion and in doing so try and make the world a better place try and help people and help humanity i mean i think everybody should but you know that's me so and where can people uh find more about homes not borders and and support with the work you guys are doing yeah you can go to our website homes not border www.homesnotborders.org um and you can find us on Instagram at homes not at, at homes not borders and on Facebook as well. And you can get more information there. I've heard a lot of sayings about following your bliss and trying to leave the world in a better state than you found it. And it all kind of sounds cliche, but when Laura says it, I hear it in a different way. Follow your passion 
and in doing so, try to make the world a better place. Homes Not Borders is how she sought to do that, but it wasn't easy. The war in Afghanistan has taken a tremendous toll on everyone involved, and the U.S.'s withdrawal has left so many in a worse situation. Whatever your perspective on the refugee crisis is, refugees are people, people seeking a better future for themselves, their families, and their future generations. That process of seeking, that's the American dream. But for those seeking asylum, that American dream becomes far more daunting, especially when you factor in racism and everything else facing these refugees. And that's why we need people like Laura. As refugees try to better themselves and their lives, Laura spends her time and effort trying to make those transitions easier. She can do this not because she's incredibly special or skilled, although she definitely is, but what sets Laura apart is her willingness to serve, her drive to step in and be a guiding hand for people going through traumatic experiences. This is true humanity at work, a humanity that seeks to build community, that seeks to find love, and that seeks to give freedom. Laura's curiosity, her gentle, kind nature, all of it took her down a road of awe-inspiring humanitarian work. And that's work that will leave a mark on many lives for generations to come. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our Chief of Staff and Operations is Jessica Lin. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Nay Buchanan, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dane, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Candazza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.